0: Someone died this past Thursday that changed all of our lives. Um, Her name was Mary Quant. Has anybody ever heard the name Mary Quant? Zero for whatever, right? We have never heard of her. Uh, She was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, I think in 2014. So that's why she goes by the name Dame Mary Quant. Um, she, um, <clears throat> Dame is the female version of Sir, okay? Uh, she was the creator of the miniskirt, named after her beloved car, which was a mini. She was responsible for such things as hot pants, the Lolita look, the slip dress, PVC raincoats, white go-go boots, smoky eyes, and sleek bob haircuts. Uh, In fact, she, without her knowing it, actually served to employ a lot of people in Bible colleges and universities. Uh, deans of women who would have rulers to measure the skirts of co-eds. And if you're too young, you're like, what? What was that about? Just ask somebody that doesn't have any hair or an older person, and they'll be able to tell you all about that. Um, So she was a very transformative figure in terms of worldwide fashion. Uh, The Victoria and Albert Museum said this about her upon her death. She represented, and here's the phrase, the joyful freedom, the joyful freedom of 1960s fashion and provided a new role model for young women. That phrase, joyful freedom, is what I want to talk about this morning. What does it mean... For the Christian to experience joyful freedom. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, we'll begin at verse 23 and read our way through chapter 11 verse 1. Paul is still on this theme of how to handle meat that has been offered to idols. He took it up first in chapter 8 where we talked about rooting Christian ethics in Christian love and proper theology. And then in chapter 9 we talked about the privileges and responsibilities as well as the sacrifice and discipline of Christian leadership in this area of kind of behavior and ethics. And then uh, in chapter 10, we've, this is the third uh, of the messages in chapter 10. We looked at how others ran their race teaches us how to run our race, Uh, looking at why is the Old Testament there for us. And then we looked at verses 14 through 22 that running to win the race requires running the race that you yourself are in. We talked about that. Now we pick up the theme of freedom and we're going to look at the freedoms of the christian there's 3 of them here in this text 1 corinthians 10:23 through chapter 11 verse 1 would you stand for the reading of god's word this morning 1 corinthians chapter 10 beginning at verse 23 all things are lawful but not all things are helpful all things are lawful but not all things build up let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Please have a seat. Three freedoms of the Christian that we will see bring great joy to the Lord and to our own hearts. The first freedom, verses 23 and 24, is the freedom to seek the good of others. The freedom to seek the good of others. Verse 23, believe it or not, there are such things as non-essentials. Now, we live in a world where everybody's opinions about literally everything have gotten more and more frozen and fixed and absolute. But not everything is helpful. Not everything builds up. Even those things, even though those things may be lawful, they could be unhelpful and not life-giving. I recognize in a world where People have been taught that everything is relative. That is, whatever you think is right for you and whatever I think is right for me, it can be hard to be wise about these matters. But in our haste to hold fast to absolutes, let's be careful not to make everything absolute, right? So in those non-essentials, there is permission But the qualifications in verse 23 are too often ignored. All things are lawful, and we end right there. Paul says, No, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. The benefit of our freedom and its exercise must be considered. Does the freedom bring good? and the constructive nature of the freedom must be considered. Does the freedom build good? Does it bring good? Does it build good? And Paul is fearful that the Corinthians seem determined to assert their right to freedom as they saw fit. Jump back a couple of pages to chapter six, verse 12, and we'll see language very similar. Here he's beginning a section on sexual immorality. And he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, Paul's building his case. And here in chapter 10, he repeats this kind of language: all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He's building his case that the Corinthians use their freedoms to benefit and build up others in the body. So verse 24, how does he do that? Well, verse 24 tells us that we are not to seek our own good, but rather to seek the good of others. When we are thinking about an area of freedom in our lives, one of the ways in which we should have some checks on that and care is not just what's free for me, what's fine, but also what is going to bring about the best good for my neighbor. Um, Seek the good of others. This is the community mission of the New Testament. The community mission of the New Testament is to seek the good of our neighbor. You remember Jesus uh, was asked, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The, the community mission of the New Testament is to love our neighbor. Uh, Let me just give you a couple of examples from elsewhere in the New Testament. Consider Romans 15, verses 1 to 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me." You see, the freest being in all the world is in all the universe is God, and God the Son did not use his freedom for himself, but for the building up of others. This is the community mission of the New Testament. Let each of you, Philippians two four, look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be just like that of Christ Jesus. Rights and freedoms then for the Christian are all about the right and freedom to seek the good of others. Christian freedom does not mean seek my own good. And this is where it intersects in an interesting way with our own culture because our culture has a view of freedom, and some of those things are good and right, and some of them are horrible distortions of what the New Testament teaches. And so it's just there that when we use the word freedom, we can get all tied up in knots and misunderstand what the Bible's saying. Rights and freedoms in the New Testament are all about the right and freedom to seek the good of others. It doesn't mean seek my own good. It means to be free in Christ in such a way that we have the power to seek the good of others. So let's think of some ways in which we need to apply a freedom like this, the freedom to seek the good of others. One important way to evaluate our lives is to ask this question. Am I helping others move closer or further away from God? Am I helping others move closer or further away from God? It's too easy for us, and many of us do think this way, that we are not moving people at all. That, you know, I'm not exactly out there engaging and trying to move people toward God, but I'm not exactly driving them away, so I guess I'm okay. No, by the New Testament definition of freedom, to not move people at all is to move them further away. Our silence and our non-engagement moves them away. We need to be careful that we don't think of our freedom in Christ as the freedom to be able to construct a nice little, happy life for ourselves and to look at the world around us and go, "Well, tisk, tisk, aren't they in bad shape?" The freedom that we have in Jesus is the freedom to seek the good of others. Uh, you know something that I love? I love it when people engage with uh, their world in such a way that they end up in the process of relationship, inviting a person to come to church with them. And in that process of inviting them to church, I see people standing at the window here. And the look is beautiful. They look with anticipation They look with a little bit of fear of being disappointed. They look with uh, an anticipation of what's gonna happen in church because when you invite somebody to church and they actually come, you look at church in a completely different way. It's no longer just an old, uh, old shoe that you wear. You know what I mean by an old shoe? It just fits. You know, you come in, you don't really notice anything, you just say, no, no, no. You invite somebody to church and they come, all of a sudden you're thinking, oh boy, I hope the music's good today. And you're thinking, well, I hope Pastor Scott talks about this and I hope he doesn't talk about that. <laughs> and I hope people will be warm, but I hope they're not too intense, you know? You have a whole different mindset when you are thinking, and this is just one example inviting people to church. There's other ways. When you are engaged in using your freedom to seek the good of others to move them on toward faith in Christ, when you use your Christian freedom that way, it blows everything up about how you live your life, it's transformative. selfishness, and what best enables me to assert my freedom is not the basis for the decisions that we should make in our lives. And it's very easy for us to do that, isn't it? We think about, well, what is it that I want? And what enables me to be able to have my independent autonomy? And that's the basis for the decisions that we make in our lives. And what… what. Radical thing that Paul is teaching us here is that our freedoms should not be built around what is, feels good to me and what enables me to kind of craft a life for myself that's content and moderately successful and happy. That's not Christian freedom. Third application, our political freedoms that we have and that we enjoy, to be who we want to be, to go where we want to go, etc. Did you know that those are not ends in themselves? It is very easy for us to get wrapped up in that and to construct our lives in terms of what we listen to and the podcasts and the social media we engage in, to just spend all of our time thinking about all of that and cursing the darkness and Praising the light where it may come. No, no, no. For the believer, those things where we experience those freedoms must ever be a means to the end of being a worshiper maturing in Christ that's seeking the good of his or her neighbor. It's a means to an end, not the end in itself. Our freedoms must be used to help others and to build them up in the faith. Now, a last application I'll share on this freedom to seek the good of others is somewhat distant from the other three. Um, It has to do with uh, the two ways that I've seen parents of teenagers go awry in their parenting. Uh, The first way that I've seen parents go awry in their parenting of their teenagers is that they do not make the precious gospel of Christ their priority and absolute. Well, they may embrace the gospel, but they don't make it their priority personally or as a family. They don't make that the driving absolute from which all other decisions are made. They just don't do that. And so the teen thinks that this gospel is just one of a library of potential options for them to embrace rather than life itself. So, in how you craft your family's life and time and freedoms, my first urge is to make the precious gospel the priority and absolute. A second way in which I have seen parents of teens um, go awry in their parenting is by making far too many things absolute including many things that are not absolute. (laughs) They have a whole list of things, this, 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 and this, and the gospel's one of them, but a whole bunch of them. And this will drive a teenager whom God is designed, this is a design of God, for them to become ever more independent. Did you know that? That your teenager, it is God's design for them to become ever more independent it will drive them to get the wrong idea. When you make too many things absolute because what they will do is they will look at the absolutes and they go, well, this is foolish, this is foolish, this is foolish, and they'll look at the gospel which is put on an equal status with these other things and they go, well, the gospel's foolish too. The freedom that we have in Christ is to seek the good of others. Well, let's look next at verses 25 to 27 and 29 and 30. We'll skip verse 28 for a moment because that actually attaches to the third freedom. The freedom not to make everything a question of conscience. Verse 25, as far as eating goes, you know, as far as eating goes, verse 25, eat whatever's sold in the, in the food market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. As far as eating goes, there's freedom. There's freedom. Eat whatever you find at the market without raising any questions of conscience. In fact, what Paul is saying here is that eating that food is not a question of conscience. It is not a question of conscience. Understand verse 25. Paul is not saying, don't ask about the meat's origin because you might feel guilty if you find out it's been sacrificed to idols. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, when he says, without raising any question on the ground of conscience, he's saying, don't waste time and energy asking about meat origin because the matter is not a moral question. It's not a moral question. You see, some people wanna make everything out to be a conscience issue, but when people do that, it does not take long to figure out that we spin in one of two very bad directions. We can spin toward trying to make everybody conform to our convictions on non-essential matters. You know those kind of folks, right? They just want to tell you what to do because they know what to do. Or we can spin toward living with guilt no matter what we do. No matter what we do, we're going to displease somebody and so we just feel guilty all the time. When we live either of these ways, we wound ourselves and others unnecessarily. And while we hotly debate these silly non-conscience issues, we lose sight of our actual and real sins and idolatry. One of the things that's interesting is that while you're worried about what other people think about some matter that isn't even a moral issue, you're not even thinking about your own real sins your own real idolatry. And the other thing I've discovered is that the people who spend all their time trying to tell people what to do on matters that aren't really matters of conscience, but they have a, they have a strong opinion, while they're telling you what to do, did you know that they are not thinking themselves about real questions of sin and conscience and idolatry in their own lives? They're spending too much time looking at these non-essentials to see the real sin that's there. May I say gently to you, as pastorally as I can, there is something seriously wrong with any believer who is not regularly convicted by real sin. You wanna know why I say that? Because every one of us really sins. And we're spending all our time on these silly questions instead of the things that are way, way more horrible. How do we know that Paul's saying this? That he's saying don't waste time and energy asking about meat origin because it's not a matter of, it's not a moral question. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 26, 4. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's a quote from Psalm 24, verse 1. Paul says, Don't even think about this. It's not a question of conscience because the Lord owns the meat. The Lord owns the meat whether or not it was sacrificed to an idol. It's the Lord's meat you eat. So don't think of it as a matter or a question of moral conscience. Eat it. It's the Lord's. You might ask the question, why did Paul use this specific verse? It's because in Paul's day, the argument that the rabbis gave for praying a blessing on every meal was taken from Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That was the argument that they made. This is why we should pray before or after we eat. Did you ever wonder why it is that you have been given the habit of praying as a Christian for your meals? Is it just something that we do? Did we always do it? The answer is we do it because the Jews did it. And the Jews did it because of Psalm 24.1. And Paul is saying, this isn't even a question of conscience, this thing about meat offered to idols, because we bless the Lord and ask his blessing as we eat of what all belongs to him. Specifically, verse 27, if you go as a guest to the home of an unbeliever, eat as a guest, without asking. You don't go to your neighbor who's invited you to dinner and ask about meat origin. (laughs) You go with thankfulness in your heart for the food and you eat what's put before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. It's not a question of conscience. There's no ground of conscience here. But there's something here that was convicting to me as I reflected on this verse. This verse, if one of the believers invites you to dinner, presumes, it presumes that believers rub shoulders deeply with unbelievers to the extent that unbelievers are inviting believers to their home for a meal. When was the last time that you were invited to eat in the home of an unbeliever who was not a relative? That was a deeply convicting question to me. Paul wants that to be happening. He wants that to be something that happens. And he does not want some silly question about meat history to get in the way of our relationship with our neighbors, loved ones who do not know Christ. So, end of verse 29, don't feel condemned by another believer's peculiar beliefs and non-essentials. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? My liberty is not affected by someone who feels convicted in some way about this. If we partake of what belongs to God with thankfulness for his gift, why should we accept being denounced for partaking? That's what he's saying in verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. The freedom not to make everything a question of conscience. For application, I leave you simply with one question that I'd encourage you to just meditate upon. This question is, what are some areas today that can be hotly debated on grounds of conscience but should not be hotly debated on grounds of conscience? What are they? What are some of those? You can think about that and be careful not to make everything a question of conscience. Well, let's go to uh, the third freedom and here we'll look at back at verse 28 and through the end of the chapter. The freedom to bless brothers and sisters who think differently. We have the freedom to bless brothers and sisters who think differently. Verse 28, uh, but if someone says to you, you know, you're at this meal, If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Um, Who is this person, this someone? Verse 28. There's three possibilities. It could be the meal host. If someone says to you, it could be the meal host that says this has been offered in sacrifice. That's doubtful because he's already described the host before, and so the use of the word someone kind of inclines you against that idea. It could be a pagan fellow guest, an unbeliever, who's a guest at the meal also, and maybe the unbeliever's pointing it out, thinking that he's helping the believer to know what to avoid. The language here saying this has been offered in sacrifice is the language that an unbeliever would use. Uh, A believer would say this has been offered to idols. Offered in sacrifice is kind of the language that an unbeliever would use. But I'm inclined to think that this someone is a fellow believer. Not the meal host, not an unbeliever, but a believer is pointing it out because that believer happens to have a conviction not to eat such meat, perhaps because of their recent leaving of the worship of idols. There may be many different reasons, but that believer is pointing it out because that believer has a conviction not to eat such meat and thinks that you also would share that conviction. Either way… No matter who it is, Paul's saying, if they tell you this, don't eat the meat for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of their conscience. You don't avoid the meat because of your conscience. Your conscience is clear, it's free on the matter. But for the sake of the informant, for the sake of their conscience, and you also don't eat it because it avoids a judgment on your freedom. You see, verse 29, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If you eat it, then all of a sudden it just raises a thousand questions of them interrogating you over freedoms, and you're just thinking, that's not my fight. That's not where I want to go. I don't want to live that way. So for this moment, I'm going to let the meat pass me by. The conclusion on the freedoms is in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Oh, this is so important, isn't it? Isn't it so important to do it all for the glory of God? Um, This is where our focus as a church is so valuable to us, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ, everything about life. We don't just have compartments in our lives, but the whole of life is for the glory of God. Not just the individual compartments of our lives, do all to the glory of God. I say, well, what is the glory of God? It's his weight, it's his significance, it's his kingdom, it's his priorities, not our significance, not my kingdom, not my priorities, it's all for him. A selfless lack of self here. We give our lives for his glory. Now, in verse 32, Paul says to give no offense. Don't give offense to Jewish believers or non believers who perhaps would avoid meat offered to idols. Acts chapter 15 describes that. Or to Gentile believers or non believers who. Maybe would not avoid meat if they knew the truth, but would avoid it if their former association with idols makes their consciences weak, which is how Paul has described it earlier in the chapter. The point is, don't use your freedoms to the detriment of another person. Verse 33, get the non-issues off the table so that people can see Jesus. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. We please everyone, but not so that they'll think well of us, because that's a journey you'll never get off the crazy squirrel cage of. Instead, we please everyone in order not to put a hindrance to the full explanation of of the gospel. Uh, Paul describes this in Galatians chapter one, verse ten, really well. He says, "Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I'm, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ." We're not trying to be people pleasers here. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse four, Paul says again. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. But we seek to get all of the issues that might get in the way of the gospel, we please people in order to get the gospel to them. Some people are scared to disagree with the world, and so they avoid hard truths. That's not what Paul's talking about. What he's saying is don't make some irrelevant issue the point of contention with the world. Instead, seek to please people so that you can share the gospel with them. And then he adds, and the chapter division, which was put in centuries later. Bleeds the paragraph over into one sentence in verse 1 of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow my example, Paul says. If you're wanting to know how you live, follow my example inasmuch as I am an imitator of Christ. You see, Jesus was not a people pleaser, He didn't please people in order for them to think well of Him. That was very clear. But Jesus did please people. He sought to please people in order for them to come to grips with the truth of the gospel. And so here we have this freedom to bless brothers and sisters who think differently. What are some concluding things that we can come from these three freedoms? The freedom to seek the good of others, the freedom not to make everything a question of conscience and the freedom to bless our brothers and sisters who think differently. Here's some applications. First, I'm gonna suggest that you make a list of three people who are not Christians. Begin praying for them. Just pray for them. Then think of ways that you can please them, not so that they think well of you, but so that you can have an avenue, an opportunity to share the gospel with them. To rub shoulders in such a way that they really know that you care about them and that you want the truth of God coming to them. Yesterday I was uh, out in the yard and I, it's been several months now and I saw my next door neighbor outside and I had a debate in my heart. Well, do I really want to take the time to go and say hi to him? well, I'm preaching this sermon. (laughs) Probably ought to practice what I preach. (laughs) I went over and talked with him. Turns out his wife's having surgery this week. And uh, I said, well, hey, let me pray for you. And I just prayed with him right there. When I got done praying, he just reached out and gave me the tightest hug Let's get all these non-essentials off the table so that we can have those kinds of interactions with people that need to know Christ. A second application that I wanna share with you is this New York City trip. If If you're feeling like, man, I need equipped, I need to figure out how to do this thing. I don't know how to be an ambassador for Christ. Did you know a vast majority of believers have never shared their faith with somebody? And those who have are very infrequent in it. Well, the goal of the New York City trip isn't so that you would share your faith with New York City people. You will do that. The goal of the trip is to equip you so that you'll feel very confident and joyous about sharing your faith with others when you get back. So just want to encourage you to go to that meeting immediately after this service. The last thing that I wanna share with you is, what does joyful freedom mean to you? Joyful freedom. For Mary Coint, it meant transforming the world of fashion in such a way that it has never been the same since. But what does joyful freedom mean for the Christian? It means engaging a lost and hurting world meaningfully with the gospel of Christ so that all the other issues are off the table, non essential, so that they may see Jesus. And that in everything we do, we seek the glory of God. Let's pray. Now, Lord, this morning we pray that if there's some here who've never put their faith in Jesus, we want them to know that there's a way they can know that they have eternal life. What we do is we say, Lord, we're, we're sinners, we've rebelled, we are turning from our sin and we're running to the beautiful cross of Jesus Christ. He died to take our place. He paid for our sins at that cross and we trust what he did at that cross to forgive us. We believe he was buried and that he rose again on the third day and so we can enjoy heaven forever with him because of who he is and what he's done and I pray that anyone here who's never put their faith in Jesus would do that right now. Say, Lord, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I commit my life to him. I turn from my sin and I run to you, God. Change my life from the inside out. Lord, help us as believers to take these freedoms and use them for the glory of God. That we would not be people who are so focused on non-essentials that instead we would seek the good of others, that we wouldn't make everything a question of conscience and that we would bless our brothers and sisters who think differently than we do. All that you may be glorified and that the gospel would be advanced. In Jesus' name, amen.